And when I speak to my female clients all the time about this, this is a resounding conversation. They're like, I'm just in, I'm just deep in the caregiving. I'm deep in what has to get done. I'm not experiencing my own emotional state around this entire experience. And for many caregivers and myself probably included, it's going to come up because it's going to come out and come up. At some point, that emotional state has got to get fed or it's going to get, you know, basically pushed into your tissues, right? So at the end of the day, we're going to have to feel it, go through it and experience it and let it have its voice but we aren't really know how to do that we don't really have the accessibility to do that and we don't have the capacity to do that and then we have hard challenges and hard choices it's do you have the capacity and ability to care for them in a nursing care facility like do you have the capacity for do that because right now 65% of care is given outside of that that means whoever is in need of care is depending on either living with other family members or living somewhat collectively or living on their own and having care caregivers and other individuals show up. Welcome to the Menopause Mastery Podcast, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, living life with a purpose. I created this show because I knew that women just like me in this second season of life, the season of menopause, are really tapping into their deepest desires. And we're ready to harness our physical and mental health and explore what our true passions are and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what we want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking the complex science and making it easier to integrate into daily life. So let's join the journey to make this season the best ever. Welcome back to Menopause Mastery. So today I'm taking a little bit of a divergent trail from talking about women's health, hormones, weight gain, and all the things that go along with menopause. But actually, I'm going to talk about something that's uh, very personal to me, but also something that affects a significant percentage of my clients, particularly my female clients. And if we look at the statistics about all of us, if we haven't already experienced it, to some degree are going to experience it. And it is one of the leading cause of overall depression anxiety, uh, lack of self-care, particularly in women at the age group of 50 and above, although we see this same thing happening in younger women and men, but statistically it's a predominantly female issue. And it's the issue around being a caregiver. And like I said, this is a this is a personal sort of discussion for me. I've mentioned bits and pieces of this, but I haven't shared the full story on the podcast. But um, on April 19th of this year, my 88-year-old mother who lived by herself, so very, very very active 88-year-old, you know, showing signs of aging, but she managed her own home. She was, you know, checking her own taxes and probably doing physical things that most people, you know, couldn't imagine an 88-year-old doing. But on the 19th of, of April, she suffered a heart attack. And actually, it was the same day that I was taking my husband to have a surgery on his leg for a traumatic tibial fracture. So it's a pretty bad fracture on the lower part of your leg that is a, a crush injury and so he was completely unable to do anything for several weeks before the surgery. And for almost 13 weeks after, he's still, you know, working on just daily things like walking 
And so, you know, we were already dealing with our own internal drama and trauma because my husband is actually my primary caregiver. He does a lot to take care of the household and make sure that my life works. And so, you know, for my husband to be out of commission from an injury for that um, time period was one thing. But when I got him home that night from the surgery, um, we, we had just gotten home, we were getting ready to do dinner. And one of my mom's best friends called and said, hey, you know, Betty, I can't get a hold of your mother on the phone. And they talk every night on her way home from work. And so, so I start calling my mother as I jump into the car. And of course, that night, I actually I have a webinar that I do on that night. So I also had some impending thing that I needed to do. But I was just like, somebody let these people know I'm not coming. When I got to her house, she was actually having a heart attack. Um, she was semi-coherent, but she was having a heart attack at the time. And we took her to the hospital. And essentially what happened, she had a heart attack. And the damage from that heart attack caused a large clot. That clot, clot broke loose. And when it hit her brain, it broke apart like buckshot and she had what they called a multifocal embolic stroke, which is basically imagine kind of every little lobe in your brain gets hit with it. And so that first week of ICU was a pretty intense time period. Um, a lot of neurological damage, a lot of hand wringing in, a lot of lack of hope coming really from the medical system. And I kept telling him, you don't know my mother. You don't, she's not an average 88 year old. She's got a lot of life left in her. And so after that stroke, she went from being completely on her, home, on her own to basically being unable to do activities of daily living. So she can't stand up. She can't transfer. She cannot really feed herself very well because she's only got the use of her left arm and that in itself is is difficult and then cognitively she's pretty significantly impaired and so you know I I've spent the last two decades working with women and men and mostly in in the age group of about 40 to you know 60 and, and above I have a few younger ones but I would say my my dominant you know client base and patient base in my clinic has been you know women and men in this age group and this is a constant conversation because we are what they used to call the sandwich generation right so what I was experiencing it was something that I have had conversations about, uh, you know, probably a million times now in the last two decades. But the truth is the sandwich generation is is talking about adults, most of which are women that are caregiving for ailing parents, whether it's their own or their, their partners, or it could be somebody else in their family. I have clients and friends that are caring for aunts and uncles and other people. And what makes it a sandwich is often at the same time, they may be caring for their own children or their own adult children that are struggling on their own. And then in many cases today, they're also caring for grandparents children. So they might be playing a role as a primary caregiver, even with their grandchildren. And so this is now becoming um, called the club sandwich generation. And of course, you may talk about this and look at this and say, well, Betty, why are you talking about caring for somebody else? I really care about my hormones. Well, here's the simple fact is statistically, if we look at the last time the CDC published data about caregiving, this was 20 based on a survey of 2015. So 2015, 2016. So it is very old right? The statistics are that our life expectancy is longer. And actually from 2015 to 2024, we're seeing actually an expected increase in age another 2.3 years. So what that means is, is that we are living longer. And even in the last few years, the people that are in front of us are living longer, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their health span is any better, right? So, so one in five people in 2016, at the end of that survey were caregivers for, for somebody, particularly somebody older. And so 
in that survey, they also found that they that the expected number that would be expecting to be caregiving in less than two years was one in six, right? So if you start to extrapolate out, that's probably two, two out of five people are doing some form of caregiving. And so what this really adds up to is number one, it mostly tends to be women, right? Mostly tends to be women, not that men don't do it, but depending on the statistics that you read, it's somewhere between 61 and 67% of all caregiving is, is by women. And it's it equates to, depending on who you look at, whether it's AARP or CDC, over 40 to 48 million Americans are acting as unpaid caregivers to somebody who is 65 or older, right? Doing some sort of caregiving. The reason why I want to talk about it today is because it's the stress, the exhaustion, the emotional toll faced by those who care give. And then not only that, but if we look at the overall mental health impacts, the health impacts of of basically putting uh, that much undue burden on somebody means that the caregiver's health actually pays the price, which is the important part because, you know, we all are trying to take measures to take better care of ourselves. But when we're caring for other people, particularly people close to us, a lot of times that takes that logical mindset of, you know, I need to put myself on the schedule. I need to take proactive steps to take care of myself becomes sidelined because there's a much larger emotional impact to the decisions that you make because it's not the same as saying, you know what, I'm not going to work those extra two hours on a Friday night because I, you know, I'm just burnt out. That's different than saying I'm not going to care for my ailing parent when I get home tonight because it's, it's just a whole different game. And what I see and what I've seen in my clients is this is often one of the major barriers to self-care. It's one of often the major barriers to feeling self-efficacy and emotional well-being. And we have to collectively as a group, we, this is a huge, huge issue that is only going to continue as we, our age group gets older, because the simple fact is we will probably live just as long, if not longer. And right now, chronic disease is trending at a higher rate than it was for our parents' generation, honestly. And so we may actually face a longer trajectory of less health in our lifespan. You know, so if we look at what the role of caregiving really looks like, I'm going to read off some statistics. So 65% of older individuals with long care, long-term care needs, right? So 65% rely solely on family and friends. So that means they have no real caregiving that has anything to do with the healthcare system. That means they rely on somebody that is being unpaid to help. And again, female caregivers make up, depending on who you're looking at, well over 50% and at least somewhere between 60 and 67 in most studies. And what we do find, and this would be true for women and men, and I'm not bashing men, right? I'm going to tell you right now, my husband does everything to take care of my life because my life is crazy. And I compartmentalize very well. And I'm very, very strict about my boundaries about self-care. But a lot of what allows me to do podcasts on top of working in my clinic, on top of speaking on stages and all the other things that I do is because my husband takes the brunt of the things that manage our home. If I had to take care of a lot of those things, you know, I wouldn't have time to spend on some of the things that I do. So, but what that means is, is even in the caregiving scheme, when it is shared, whether it's an adult getting care, so an elderly parent or a child, often when it is shared between a spouse, a spouses or partners, the female will get the things that are mission critical time sensitive, meaning picking up the children or going and taking somebody to the doctor's appointment. And that the partner, if male, often picks up the things that have variable schedules like mowing the lawn or getting the laundry done, where it doesn't have a time requirement and that time constraint. Because let's face it, things that have time constraint are more stressful. So 
the simple fact is women, we are taking the brunt of this. And it's a huge challenge because our life, longer life expectancies mean that also for us, after we sandwich like this, which the average time is 18 years. So the average time of people in the sandwich, or in this case, the club sandwich generation, is we are looking at almost two decades of caregiving for either our own children. And, and then if you add the adult children that we are still financially supporting and often caregiving and then caregiving their children, and you add a parent to it, the average person is going to spend 18 years doing that, right? 18 years caring for somebody else. When we look at this season of life as our time to empty nest and be free right? and be free. Now, some people, that empty nest idea sounds so sad and so terrible, but even the one that, you know, the people that love their children that are leaving the nest to become adults, once we go through the pain and suffering of the, the children leaving, often that sense of freedom is new and lovely, but it's not new and lovely if you don't have that freedom because you have to care for another parent, especially when it's uh, on average, on average, 20 hours of unpaid time a week. So that means statistically, the caregiver is spending a half of a work week being unpaid doing stu- doing caregiving things for the family member, right? So, and we also can look forward to as women, our life expectancy is if we are in a heterosexual relationship with a man, we are also expected to outlive them, right? Statistically, it's always been that way. It still looks that way. So we also face our own long-term care needs. And of course, as somebody right now, deeply immersed in my mom's health care. And she's had, you know, subsequent things that have happened. So, you know, deeply immersed in that, it makes me very, very clear about what I want my latter part of my life to be and how important it is for me to get healthy right now. Because it your, your health span is what's important, not necessarily your lifespan, because I don't think anybody would say, hey, I don't care how long I live and what the quality of it is, just as long as I live a long time. Right? So, so watching my mom go through what she's going through just makes me want to double down on everything that I do to take care of myself and even be more thoughtful about it, right? But the the challenge that I feel and the reason why I felt compelled to talk about this on the podcast was I feel torn. I feel torn. I look at it and I go, you know, for basically the last 13 weeks, I'm exhausted. You know, my mom had never really been in the hospital before, quite literally. So the good thing is, is up until 88, the middle of 88, she had never really been a participant in the medical system. She had never spent time in the hospital. So I'm so thankful for that because unlike many people, she was very healthy. But since that time, She's been in the hospital seven times and a total of five and a half, almost six weeks. The other time she was, she spent three weeks in a skilled nursing facility. So this has been kind of a merry-go-round. And, you know, like I said, I pride myself on doing a lot to take care of myself within the context of a crazy busy life. And, you know, I was sleeping in the ICU. I was staying up there and just looking at it and going, this is unsustainable. There's no way that I can be a good caregiver and take care of her and make sure her needs are being met when I'm literally not sleeping and I'm trying to find food in a um, vending machine because I didn't think I was going to be stuck there as long as I was, you know, just like what anybody would do. So we face this. So women over 50 on average are going to face this. And again, there's lots of women that are under this age and lots of families dealing with this. But when we look at working women, so statistically women over over 50, this is the time period of our lives that we make our greatest impact on the world. So whether we're writers, artists, becoming an executive, becoming a great whatever, most of the things that we remember women for are women that were in this age group. And a lot of it is because we have this new freedom and this new creativity. And we have all those hormonal changes that I think bring an extraordinary amount of wisdom. But the average working woman of 55 face more financial difficulties because of this, because they often have to lead to reduced work hours, job loss, and also early retirement. Statistically, women are going to experience 
experience this more than men if they are caregiving, right? And some of that's probably bias in the business world. We know the Me Too movement has moved forward, but it hasn't really helped much for the glass ceiling. And women are the backbone of this care system. And if you were to look at what this care system, the freebie care system, the unpaid care system in the United States is valued at somewhere between 148 and 188 billion dollars annually. So that's how much should be getting paid out for people who are caregiving for free, right? So so we face a heightened risk because of being caregivers for depression, anxiety, and pretty much all mental health issues. Physical health also can deteriorate with increased risk for um, just overall poor health, increased heart disease, cardiovascular disease, and other forms uh, and other like chronic disease. Uh, what's interesting is they did a study. So they they did a study back in, I want to say it was 20, either 2013 or 2014. I probably should look this up, but I, I didn't because I we have newer studies coming out. And originally what they found was that mortality was at a greater risk. So risk for death was higher in those who were caregiving relative to those who were not caregiving. Now, our more recent study that came out two years ago said, no, the the overall health risk is the depression, anxiety, the current health concerns, but that mortality wasn't wildly different. But all other chronic disease states were worse for somebody who was caregiving. So what that ultimately means is, is somebody who's a caregiver may not die before somebody who's not a caregiver, but the health of that caregiver is going to be poorer than the person who is, is not caregiving. So that's important to know because that tells you that that is a distortion of your health span. And ultimately, longevity is only valuable if you're feeling good and healthy, right? Nobody wants to be unhealthy and live a long time. And the other thing that I see too beyond that is there's there's also experiences of emotional trauma and the emotional impact Right. So we know that there's always feeling this feeling of I'm neglecting something. Right. I I mean, this is constant conversation I have with my husband all like all day, every day is, oh, my gosh, you know, I feel like I need to go over and and I need to do this thing right with my mother at all times. I felt like I needed to be at the hospital every minute of every day to pray that I was there for when the doctors actually showed up because, you know, they they showed up when they wanted to show up and, and I wanted to make sure I was there because my mom is in no capacity to be able to have any kind of meaningful communication about her health. And, you know, while I was in the hospital and there were so many, you know, things that happened and discussions that if I hadn't been there, I really worry about what her care would have been, which makes me think about, you know, I feel sorry for anybody that has to have somebody in the hospital and also not have a caregiver in the family in healthcare because navigating this, even as somebody in the industry, is painful, just radically painful. And you have to be a fierce advocate to know that your family member is getting help. And I had some great people at the hospital. I had some great people at skilled nursing. And I had some doctors in skilled nursing that just really didn't know what they were doing and I think was dismissive and just earning a paycheck. So at the end of the day, you know, there's this always feeling feeling that I have to I have to be there at every moment and I feel like I'm neglecting my mom. And it's a constant juggling act of, you know, what's most pressing? What do I need to do? I have an entire business, you know, and employees that also depend on me and a, and a massive number of patients and clients that depend on me to help them navigate their own care. And then there's this idea of sending boundaries and how do I say no to things in a way that's, you know, safe for me, safe for the others and and really helping. And in addressing that false guilt, right, the false guilt that caregivers get, the get, we all feel it. 
And then, you know, the other thing that I think I'm still grappling with, and I think I'm a far, a far cry from being okay with it, is also grappling with the the guilt of grieving the, the relationship that I had and the relationship I wish that I could have with my mom now that she is no longer really communicative. She's she's able to speak, but her her a her ability to have a commu- have a meaningful converse- conversation is gone. I mean, that's just the reality. She's in a different reality, and it's my mom is gone, right? My mom is gone, and so really figuring out how to handle that grieving and knowing that that relationship is over. To be honest, you know, it comes up. I have a moment with it, and then I pack it away because I'm in the middle of taking care of business for her, right? And when I speak to my female clients all the time about this, this is a resounding conversation. They're like, I'm just in, I'm just deep in the caregiving. I'm deep in what has to get done. I'm not experiencing my own emotional state around this entire experience. And for many caregivers and myself probably included, it's going to come up because it's going to come out and come up. At some point, that emotional state has got to get fed or it's going to get, you know, basically pushed into your tissues, right? So at the end of the day, we're going to have to feel it, go through it and experience it and let it have its voice. But we aren't really know how to do that. We don't really have the accessibility to do that. And we don't have the capacity to do that. And then we have hard challenges and hard choices. It's do you have the capacity and ability to care for them in a nursing care facility? Like, do you have the capacity for do that? And then we have hard challenges and hard choices. It's do you have the capacity and ability to care for them in a nursing care facility? Like, do you have the capacity for do that? Because right now, 65% of care is given outside of that. That means whoever is in need of care is depending on either living with other family members or living somewhat um, somewhat collectively or living on their own and having caregivers and other individuals show up, which obviously leads a lot greater risk. You know, even the last year with my mom, she was, again, very sharp, but, you know, there were little hallmarks of her forgetting things and you just, you wake up every day and go, oh my gosh, is she going to leave something on the stove and forget it's there? I mean, I've done that. You know, it's so, so the, the whole idea of whether we could even have assistance or whether people have the capacity to engage in professional services. Because right now in the United States, especially, this falls back onto family because we have no real capacity for assisted living and nursing facilities as part of our national healthcare scheme, whereas other places in Europe, it is part of their healthcare agenda and plan. You know, and we also have balancing our caregiving responsibilities with everything else. So whether you're working or traveling or or handling family matters for other family members. It's this constant feeling of balancing act and then leveraging the the family members and distributing responsibilities. Often we may not have the capacity to to basically transfer responsibility for different things to other family members, or maybe we do, but we don't have people that will follow through depending on what's going on. So then there's this greater burden on your shoulders of, I don't have anybody to help me, even though there's probably lots of people in the house because I hear that a lot too. You know, and this is all challenging because all of these hard times and hard choices that we have to make come up at the same time that we often feel like we're maybe have a sense of purpose because we're caring for somebody we love, that we may have little moments of personal growth here. I know that, you know, in the last four months, because I had to be so much more intentional about the few moments I took for my own self-care, I became very intentional about it and actually experienced little, you know, little bursts of personal growth 
and I've been working in personal growth, obviously, for forever, but little spurts of personal growth of things that I was, you know, maybe sort of backburnering before that I'm able to, you know, that I, because I was meaningful and, and targeted about it, I'm actually doing today. So despite the challenges, we often have this sort of personal growth and a sense of purpose at the same time. And then if somebody's in a lower income or, and often statistically uh, as a minority, will face greater challenges with financial constraints and magnifying the caregiving burdens. And then, you you know, there's a whole side of that caregiving burden of whether we have counselors and resources and assistance that can span all of the needs of somebody that's caregiving for a family member. You know, and so what it all comes down to is the the self-care and the stress management for it all. Like I said, the statistic that I found most interesting was that, you know, life expectancy mortality wasn't really radically changed between the caregiver and the non-caregiver, but the overall health of the of the caregiver was worse, right? So again, mortality stinks if it's the same, if my health is poor for most of it. So what it really means is we have to have self-care and we have to have mental breaks and we have to have a capacity to feed our or fill our own cup in order to fill somebody else's. And, you know, the practical tips of delegating chores and getting support in, you know, especially things that are time constrained, whether it's pickups or, you know, taking the elderly family member to doctor's appointments. Like that's one of the things that my husband did for my mom. He, because he had a fireman schedule, he could take my mom on a week or on a work day where I didn't have to take time away from my patient schedules because right now I'm scheduling like mid November. So if I cancel somebody tomorrow, that means I can't really put them on my schedule until almost Thanksgiving, which isn't fair to the patient and isn't fair to me and definitely isn't fair to my mom. But, you know, having my husband being able to to step in and play some of that caregiving delegation role is huge. And then also there's a lot of there's a lot of challenges with siblings. I have I have a group of girlfriends where we text and communicate all the time and we have monthly conversations and every single one of them have either caregive, you know, have have been a caregiver role or are in the middle of it right now. So I would say half have already done it, the other half of us are in it, and all of us are healthcare providers. So we're already in a caregiving role, right? So there is a little bit of of um, additional emotional toll if you're already in a role where you care give because there's also this this um, idea of what we call vicarious trauma and vicarious trauma actually comes from lingering feelings of emotional upheaval especially around the things that have happened to the people we're caring about right so it's either caring about our family member that was you know, hurt, injured, made unwell, or what they're going through. And then also possibly the vicarious trauma we may experience through just being in a caregiving situation. So it's a double whammy if somebody is in healthcare or is a counselor or a teacher or other places where they may experience um, helping people through pain and suffering. And often, even though we might do the best of intention to try and keep some emotional distance, we often get tied in or overly involved in that emotional drama and trauma that may be happening to people that we know and the people we care for. And that becomes vicarious to us. We experience it as if we're in it. And then I would say all of us feel some level of bystander guilt, shame, feelings of self-doubt. There's a a lot of shame and guilt around whether we're doing enough, being enough, taking care enough, even whether somebody is in healthcare or in some sort of caregiving role or not in their professional life. That preoccupation of bystander guilt and shame and doubt 
plays out across the board. And we also find also that we are preoccupied with our the, whoever we're caregiving to their situation all the time. So it starts to take kind of front, you know, front uh, and center, which affects our work relationship. Again, I did those statistics where women experience job loss and, you know, lack of promotional opportunities and other things because they are balancing a, you know, basically a part-time, at least 20 hour a week job that they're not getting paid for. So what can you do with all of this, right? So I'm not going to pretend that I've got the answer here because I'm still fumbling through just like anybody else. I have the the luck and the thrill of having a lot of scientific knowledge about different forms of self-care and things and what's that going to do to my chemistry. But I face the same challenges that you do is that it's a struggle. It's a struggle to get self-care in all the time, you know, and ultimately we need to protect our physical and mental and emotional health. And so we have, and we have to, what that really means is that we have to put our own self first, which feels uncomfortable because that's where the shilt and uh, the shilt, the shilt, ah, the shame and the guilt. Okay. I have a new word. It's shilt. The shame and the guilt come up, right? So it's a nice theory. So we'd like to be able to say, oh, I'm always going to put myself first, but it always comes down to if somebody has an urgent need. So what that means is, is we have to at least start working on putting ourselves on the schedule and putting some caregiving around our own life and then know that if something comes up that is is urgent that that urgency may be much more dramatic and something I have to address right now you know and so what that means is we have to schedule it okay so the the first thing that I know in 20 years of working with people is any lifestyle diet change other thing that we're doing self-care it doesn't happen unless it's scheduled so what that means is is all of us have a schedule whether we have a schedule for work or a schedule for you know, the things that we're doing with our children or whatever. We have some form of schedule, even if you have left the work environment. And that schedule needs to contain your self-care items, whether it's getting a walk, whether it's preparing food, whether it's getting a massage, whether it's, you know, taking 30 minutes of or five minutes of meditation, you should schedule it because things that get scheduled get done. Things that are left when things are, you know, things are good or when I have a few moments never get done. And so we have to, we have to put that on there. So you need to put things that you think are, you know, silly to put on your schedule, like taking a bath and relaxing and maybe reading a book and doing five minutes of meditation and taking a walk every morning should show up on your schedule, just like an appointment. And you should treat it as such. You should also take advantage of any kind of social environments where you might be able to take a few moments and get community. One of the most tragic things that came out of COVID was we now recognize the emotional and mental toll it took for us to be quarantined, which by far, if you ask me, is way more damaging than everything else about COVID. It was basically forcing the entire world to stay quarantined and and isolated for years. And I think we'll see the unfortunate emotional impact of that, particularly on our children for decades. But we are social animals and we need people. And so the other thing that happens, because I know this was true for me. I didn't have time for my friends time. And I'm putting air quotes around that. I felt like I didn't have time. And I had to make sure that I made at least small efforts where I could at least pepper some in here and there because I needed that because I needed that to recharge. I needed my friends. And so that's the other part is you have to also make sure that even in your guilt or your shilt, game and shilt, game, or, I'm sorry, 
shame and guilt. Even in that, you got to make sure that you take your time to see your friends and have a little bit of community because that recharges you and you can't charge somebody else and support somebody else when you are drained. And then looking for social support. So it's often helpful to talk with somebody else that has been there, right? And and so that might be looking up caregiving um, resources and communities online, whether it be Facebook groups or other groups to at least weigh in. Like my group of girlfriends that we text, you know, as soon as things happened to my mom, I was getting all kinds of recommendations from my girlfriends that had been through it, you know, had been through it with their father and their mother. And it was so helpful because I could I could explain my anger. I could explain my guilt. I could explain, you know, my shame. And I could I could have a moment of deep emotional kind of just come apart with them because I knew that they understood. And the other girls that were going through it too, we had shared experiences and we could understand. And so I think it's really important to know that you're not alone, right? If that statistic from 2015 was one in five, it's closer to probably two in five based on CDC numbers and it's only going to rise. So at the end of the day, you and your friends are probably going through it or have gone through it. And then the other thing is is being able to ask for help. As somebody who's a, a fierce independent person, asking for help is something that I've had to learn to do. And it's something I'm still learning to do. I'm not good at it, but I'm getting better at it because I need it because there's no way I can do everything for my mother and do all the things that I do today. Now I happen to be lucky. I don't have children, so I'm not part of the club sandwich, but I do look at my clients and patients and, and, you know, I have a huge community of people that I care for. And you know, I, I have not experienced having to do that for children, but I still understand the pain of not being able to be there for the people you care about. You know, and I'd say the last thing is you have to draw on the experiences of others. And that's why your girlfriends and your other friends and, and people are valuable. And also, if you don't have a network of people that are going through this, there's, again, groups online that you could reach out to just to have a lending hand and a help. Because we have to understand that caregiving and involves patience and love and compassion. And we have to support our mental health and the efforts of all of us as caregivers. Because until we change the healthcare system, particularly in the U.S., I'm speaking to the U.S., but I'm, I've heard all over the world, you know, our healthcare system as a for-profit system does a really poor job of providing true care when it comes to the aging population. We just, we are not designed to do it. And it's antiquated and based on a model, whereas, you know, our life expectancy was below 60 years old in 1900. And even if we look in the 1950s and 60s up until really the 70s, and moving into the 80s, the life expectancy went from your mid-60s and now we're into our late 80s, which means that we live longer and we also have more um, long-term health problems like dementia and Alzheimer's and um, more of a loss of functionality over time rather than just a sheer drop-off because of death. And so we have we have a lot to do in the U.S. And, you know, as a woman going through this, just know that if you're going through this too, I, I hear you and I've got you. And I know that you can you can balance what you need to balance and you can let go of what you need to let go of and that you matter and your health matters and that taking care of other people is not valuable if you're doing it at your own expense. And, you know, like I said, when I was talking about my clients and patients, this is a common conversation that the struggle to take care of oneself to whether it's lose weight or 
you know, reduce their risk for diabetes or whatever they're working on, autoimmune conditions, all of this has a relationship with our stress and our stress has a relationship with what we're responsible for. And we have to find a way to be able to manage this scenario within our lives because most of us are going to go through it. So, you know, for me, it's a challenge every day and I, I work on it and I try not to feel guilty when I can't be there at every moment of every day. And then I try and, and really find the beauty and the blessing in the time that I do spend with my mom. And I'm going to end on a, a, a real quick uh, aside from uh, Dr. Ben Hardy. So Ben Hardy is a writer and um, speaker and just all around amazing guy. And he's written a book about future self and 10x is greater than 2x and several other books. And I wa- saw him speak a couple years ago. And one of the things that he said during the speech was a way to sort of reframe, reframe your moment, right? And was to make sure that the experience you're having right here, right now is the experience you want to have, you know, because when I'm tired and irritated and frustrated, the last thing I want to do is be present in the moment. And one of the questions he asked us as a future self question was, if you looked at like your day and let's say you come in and you're angry and irritated and I walk in and my husband says something and I'm just like, ah, (laughs) wear me out, you know, and then I'm fussy and dismissive. That's not going to do anything great for our relationship. And then if I were to look 10 years forward in my life and I had a moment to look back at that snapshot, that moment, would I want to remember that that's how I behaved? Would I want to remember the experience I gave my husband in that moment because I was snappy and crunchy and bent? No. And the truth is, is at any given time, if we've lost somebody or we're losing somebody, we can look back on moments where it's like, oh, I wish I would have done that differently or I wish I would have thought about it differently or I wish I would have had a different experience. So one of the questions he asked in this talk was, if you, right before you have that interaction, ask yourself this very simple question, what would my future self want to experience about this moment 10, 15, 20 years down the road, right? Would my future self want to remember me, you know, whining to my husband or getting crunchy and angry at my husband because I was already bent out of shape that day? Or would my future self want me to come into that conversation fully present and aware and give some undivided attention so I could make a, a, a unique and, and truly meaningful connection. And the truth is, is everybody would choose that second choice. And I started using that when I would visit my mom, because, you know, moms can sometimes be challenging to daughters, especially when my mom was still fully functional before her heart attack and stroke and everything else. And it really helped me reframe, you know, uncomfortable times where I just uh, was already playing a little bit of a caregiving role and I was feeling put out and exhausted. It helped me reframe that so I could have a better experience in that moment. But even now, even now when I'm trying to have a conversation with her and she doesn't make sense, I'm trying to have a truly meaningful moment and being present with her and trying to look at it and saying, you know, two, three, five years down the road, I won't have this opportunity. She's not going to be here. And if I have this moment with her right here, right now, even though it may not be the one that I had before, it's the moment that I'm having now and I'm fully present to him. And that makes it easier. Being able to be present and in the moment, but you can't do that all the time if you're not taking care of yourself. If you're not doing the things necessary to make your world work, which often means feeling like you're not doing everything for this other person. So all that to say, ladies and gentlemen who might be listening, is if you are caregiving, I feel for you because it's hard. If you are not caregiving, but you know it's coming, it's hard. And it's something that if your family doesn't talk about it or doesn't really plan for it, I suggest doing that because the statistics are, it's, 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 
the reality in most cases. And then if you've been here and you still harbor feelings about it, you did a great job. You did the best you could with what you had, whatever that may have been, and you did a great job. And I hope that everybody here recognizes that wherever you are in this continuum, the more you're able to take care of yourself, the more your health span, the length of time that you're healthy and alive, start to align and that we too are going to probably live a long life, but we want to live a long and healthy life in that every moment of every day that you take just a second to make a healthier choice, even though five seconds ago you may not have, you can in that moment and it's okay. So thank you for listening to Menopause Mastery. I hope you have a very healthy and happy week. And if you found this conversation valuable, share it with a friend and give me some feedback online. I'd love to hear it. Have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Menopause Mastery Podcast. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode has helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD and you can reach me online at BettyMurray.com. 